one of the things I love about open source is you just kind of start pulling one of these strings and sometimes a whole lot of interesting problems unravel together. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. I'm joined today by Abe Gong and Kyle Eaton of the Great Expectations Project. Abe, Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Awesome to be here. Thank you. This is one we've been excited about discussing for some time. Great Expectations has caused quite a stir in the industry. It's good to be able to capture the story. So let's level set with our guests and explain to them exactly what Great Expectations is. Where, where should we start? Yeah, I'm happy to take that one. Great Expectations is the leading open source project for People use all kinds of words for this now. Data quality, data testing, data validation, data observability. Pick your buzzword. But at the end of the day, the goal is to understand what is happening in your data pipelines. And the way we think of the problem, it's not just a monitoring tool. We also fold in documentation. So having docs that reflect what is happening. And we can talk more about that in a minute. And then also data profiling, which is kind of scanning through databases or logs or wherever your data lives and helping to come up with a set of rules that'll make for good tests. I like the word data quality because I, I think it's not just a technical problem, right? It, it's much more of a, an organizational challenge of getting everybody on the same page about what's going on in the data. Perfect. And, you know, you used also the word data testing, which brings to light, we talk about tests in, in software development all the time, when we want to ensure that future builds meet, you know, spec is that type of pattern what we're talking about here in terms of the data? Like I have CI tests for my app and now I have great expectation tests for my pipeline? Yeah, so I think that's a really good one to be explicit about. So the question is like, what constitutes a change? In, in the software world, changes happen when the software changes, right? Like they happen when you compile your code or do a Git pull. In the data world, it's interesting because other people change the data all the time. Like things in the real world happen, messages accumulate in queues and logs and data warehouses. And like when those things change, they can break. So when you talk about monitoring and data, you actually have, or testing, you actually have two things that are changing. One is somebody is changing the code. And yes, you want to do a CI process on that. The other one that actually happens a lot more often and that usually needs higher scrutiny because it's more outside your control is the data itself changing. Yep, the data is flowing, if you will, or it's being updated and there, there's drift in the data and some of it could drift over time in a port of reference, or you may just get anomalous, erroneous data that you want to be kind of alerted on. Yeah. And I mean, all kinds of things can happen there. So you, you talk about drift. And to me, that implies this kind of like slow, steady process where, oh, I don't know, you've got a service that's slowly degrading. And so the number of failed API calls is slowly changing over time. That's one possibility, like frog in the boiling pot. The other possibility that happens a lot is maybe you have an upstream data provider, so a, a logging team or, or a data vendor, and maybe they make a change and they flip a switch, and then all of a sudden you're getting very different data. So like a thing that I hear from a lot of machine learning teams, for example, is they're downstream of the logging team. And if the logging team decides that they want to change the labels on events, that might really make sense for debugging the app and could also lead to completely screwing up a machine learning model that was trained on as events before. 
Got it. And that explains why it's more than testing, because you're right. As soon as you help inform one team what another team is kind of doing with data, then it becomes an organizational data quality effort. And I can imagine all the remaining features you described. Yeah. I mean, if you want to get kind of poetic about it, data people are used to thinking in DAGs, right? Like directed acyclic graphs. And the way that I've come to think of it is there's the DAG that is captured in your software. But upstream of that, there is a causal flow, like there's other things that are happening in the real world. And when things in that kind of great DAG in the sky change, like it's the data generating process, right? The upstream data process that affects what shows up in your database. Those things will also affect your data and the conclusions you're drawing from your data. And you want want a system that is smart about those things. Yes, the great DAG in the sky. (laughs) I think that's a very me thing to say. So, so tell us how the project came to be. I mean, part of me wants to ask you, you know, what, how this emerged now. We've had data problems before, but take us to the, back to the beginning. Yeah. So if you go back, the project started almost four years ago at this point. It was originally a kind of a nights and weekends collaboration between myself and a friend, James Campbell, who's now the CTO at Superconductive, which is the company that's backing Great Expectations. So at the time, it was a thing that we were both using at work. Uh, it was actually, let me, let me tell you the actual origin story. The two of us had been members of a group of friends who'd known each other since college and before. And we'd jump on a call every month or two to talk about what we were doing just in life because we we're all getting married at about the same time. And most of us wound up in data science. And so there was a lot to talk about there. So one of these days in early 2017, we jumped on a call and I had come with this idea of like, yeah, there really should be some kind of a tool for testing data in in the way that we just talked about. And I jumped on the call and James went first and he started describing this thing that was exactly the same thing that I was thinking of. So we'd come to the same call with the same idea and even some of the technical details were remarkably aligned. And so it just felt like, okay, we have to do this now. Like there's no way that we cannot build this system. At the time he was working in government and national security. I was working in healthcare, uh, doing data integrations and data warehousing. And I think part of it was seeing these two widely disparate industries that very much needed the same thing. And just realizing that we'd arrived at the same place, totally coincidentally. And I'm curious about the like initial ambitions. You wanted this tool so you could get your work done. You were excited to work with your friend on it. Is that the extent of like what you wanted to achieve with this thing? I think we had vague notions that like, yeah, this is a thing that other people would need. So let's open source it. And at the time, neither of us had a ton of experience as open source contributors or maintainers. We'd done some work there. And I think a lot of people in the data ecosystem today have seen that not everything, but most of the platform that the data world is built on today is the product of open source over the last few years. So I think we had a lot of respect and admiration for that, but it wasn't really something that we were deeply experienced in. And maybe to answer the question behind the question, there was no notion at all of like, oh, we should make this a startup. Like, here's our revenue model for this thing. We, we weren't thinking about that at all at that point. It was mostly just, hey, here's a thing that the world should definitely have. And we have a similar enough idea about it. that would be fun to work together on it. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of, so you've been, you've been data open source consumers for a while. And so that was the natural thing to do. Let's build this thing that solves our problem and then see if it solves other people's problems. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's one of the things I love about open source is you just kind of start pulling one of these strings and sometimes a whole lot of interesting problems unravel together. So I got to ask about the name and at what point you decided we were calling this great expectations. It's kind of fun. We decided that pretty early. 
we kicked around some other names. So I, I don't know if we've ever talked about it publicly. There was a time when we talked about it as Lewis and Clark. And the idea was explore your data and come back with a map. And at the end of the day, we just decided the whole thing is built around this idea of expectations. Let's just call it something that emphasizes that. And it doesn't hurt that my wife is an English major and we like own all of the Dickens books. And so there are a lot of Charles Dickens ones you can make too. Yeah, very good. All right. So you've got the name. It's you and James collaborating on this. Eventually it reaches a point where you push it out to the world. What's the initial reception or kind of launch, if you will, like the open source? So we proposed it as a talk for Strata. I need to check. I think that was early 2018. We just kind of been working on it quietly. Um, it was open source, but we hadn't really, there'd been no press or no discussion about it. So we did a talk at Strata. We put out one blog post on Medium called Down with Pipeline Debt, which just described what we were doing and why. And yeah, I mean, there's this immediate sense that yes, we'd struck a nerve. I have a lot of good friends and then you know, people who I didn't know, but who I'd been following on Twitter and respected jump on it and retweet it and share it. And yeah, just the sense of like, yeah, this is a thing that lots of other people recognize the need for. It's timely. The way we've architected it feels good, like integrates well with other tools. And I mean, I guess the unusual thing is we launched it and then we didn't do a whole lot with it at that point because we were still in this nights and weekends mode. Super conductive at that time was a healthcare data consulting company. So had very much had my plate full, just lining up clients and, and doing good data consulting. Uh, and like I said, James was still in government at that point. And I'll, I'll fast forward on the timeline a little bit. It wasn't until 2019 that we decided, wow, there's something really interesting happening here. And okay, let's let's actually make this the focus of what we do. So the real catalyst for that was a combination of consulting contracts that came to Superconductive. And it was people saying, hey, we're not a healthcare company, so we don't need you to do healthcare stuff for us but we do have data pipelines and we know that you have something to do with this open source project. And that's a real issue for us. So a combination of other data consulting companies, there was some pharma in there, there were, there were media companies. So just like a very eclectic, different group of teams coming and saying, basically, hey, this is a problem that's real and we've got money and please help us solve it. Even more than that, it was contributors that helped us really see that great expectations have become load-bearing technology. So like, for example, the first deployment of great expectations on Spark was entirely contributed by a team out of Cascade Data Labs, which is a data consulting company that we didn't know personally before working for a client that we didn't know and that their client had a bunch of tests in great expectations on SQL. They were migrating to Spark and they wanted to take their tests and their documentation with them. And so they basically loaned us an engineer for two months to work on that project. So, I mean, you know, real expense that people are paying for. And it just opened our eyes that this project that we put out there because we thought it was a cool thing was actually really getting used in a lot of places. That's fantastic. Abe, we may come back to this because I, I want to hear about those kind of initial community outsourced contribution moments, but maybe just to pull Kyle in some. Kyle, maybe you can tell us about when you first run into the project and how the community operates today and how that's kind of evolved over time. Yeah, so I actually was brought on as a UX designer originally, and I was staffed onto one of the clients, as well as start to sort of poke around what a more like SaaS platform of great expectations could possibly be. Those initiatives started to change when we saw the momentum build around the community and great expectations. So it had like a small Slack and 
some consistent contributors in there. I think at the time it was probably in like the mid twenties. Um, remind me, I think, I think you set up the Slack channel, didn't you? Yeah. And, and yeah, so I set up the Slack channel and then I, uh, I also, I actually came on around the same time that James came on full time. And that's when the writing was on the wall that we were going to start moving towards great expectations being like the focus of the community. So I shifted over from, from doing UX, started focusing on community growth. And we've just been doing sort of scrappy organic content strategy to build out the community. And it's like definitely an advantage being an open source product because we're sort of able to get in and mingle with lots of different communities who are like very protective of their communities and don't want people coming in trying to like sell their product. And that has brought us amazing contributors, has given us a lot of great sort of cred within the data engineering community. And that was, I think the Slack channel probably started in, I want to say early 2019. And then we're at 4,600 something today in terms of Slack. And we have over 200 contributors and counting in uh, our GitHub. So it's moving fast and Right now, a big initiative for us is building infrastructure to make sure we continue to scale in a way that people still enjoy the community. Yeah, you're meaning like things beyond Slack, you know, other places to meet and coordinate. Exactly. Yeah, that and the Slack, the Slack as well. I mean, just like making sure you have good support in there. We're building out our DevRel team, so we're getting more developer advocates to help in GitHub, to help in Slack. We're going to start expanding our forms for long-form conversations and things like that. We've dabbled a lot with like community show and tells, which have been super, super fun. And we want to start bringing those in more consistently now that we're putting more weight behind our DevRel team. There always seems to be some tension behind like, we want a Slack, but we also want like a, a more stateful place for conversations. You know, we answer a question on Slack, but then it gets lost. And, and how do we reuse that? And I've seen people go really heavy on the forums. And then other people are like, no, no, I don't want to get my question answered. I just want to hang out and like lurk on the conversations that are happening. I don't actually have a question to be answered. I just want to, you know, interact with the community. So it does feel like that you kind of have to have both. You do. um, And like, we like to call it the river of Slack. So like, you know, you say something that could be really interesting and then just whoosh, you know, it's gone. Gone. So we we really want to build like a good bulletin board for those like interesting conversations that could be long form. Because not everyone's in there daily to catch every moment. Some people pop in, monthly, weekly, something like that. Like everyone has their different cadence. So yeah, we're trying to build a nice bulletin board for those more long form conversations, but the effort for Slack will be there. We're not going to take away from that. What what role has other communities played in your adoption? I've, I've been impressed that Great Expectations gets kind of, um, you, you go to other data projects and they say, oh, you know, we, we work well with Great Expectations. You go to Airflow or to um, Daxter or something and you get to kind of co-opt other communities. Do you feel like that is a way of finding users? And what role do other communities play in your adoption? You're hitting on like a really big point. I think the collaboration with other communities, one is probably my favorite thing to do, and also the best for both communities' growth and interaction. Like it brings a lot of activity and interest when you have that collaboration. And one of the ways that we've been able to do that successfully is with our show and tells, where what we'll do is we'll highlight two different companies that are using great expectations and then we'll throw in like a Dagster to present or an Airflow to present 
And you know what? And the other day we actually did an, an event with a flight and those are super fruitful for everyone, especially like within those overlapping open source communities, they tend to work really well because everyone has that same mentality of sharing and, and growing. Yeah. Some of it is kind of crossover in terms of user adoption as a growth loop. I think a lot of it though is more about like cross-fertilization of ideas. And, and what I mean by that is while we're working with the flight team, we're having really interesting conversations about what is the nature of typing in data and like where a type system is going to go. And it's a thread that we've been pulling on that, you know, I think is going to be a relevant thing. It's a thing they've, I honestly, I think thought more deeply than almost anybody. I don't know, Dagster team's up there too. But being with people whose full-time job is also empowering developers and they're thinking about what is the data ecosystem going to look like, you know, in six months, in a year, in five years, just being really in those conversations, it's just energizing for everybody. And I think it matters to have the right ideas there. I think kind of having the right architecture, having the right technical decisions really does shape the way the ecosystem builds. Yeah. And open source creates this public forum. You know, you can't really hide behind walls and force developers in a direction. There's a bit of a um, forgetting the marketplace phrase. Of ideas, marketplace of ideas. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's a transparency there. Yeah. Which favors developers, the, the best ideas win out, and, and it favors the, the communities who are really engaged in that dialogue to discover the truth, as, you know, other, rather than muscle their angle. I think there can be muscling angle in a way, because, yeah. <laughs> and then, then this could even be like a good thing sometimes, is you could have that one really passionate person about like, this thing would be great to have. Like, it could be, you know, what we we're talking about with, uh, 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 sorry, what was that? What was that major contribution that that Cascade put in? Abe? Oh, Spark. The Spark. Yeah. yeah. Like we weren't about to. I mean, of course, like you know, agree that's good. Have that. But we weren't. You know, you weren't about to put in the effort yourself to do it. But then someone was like dedicated. Like, no, we want this, and just boom, here it is. All you have to do is click merge, and we're good to go. It was more work than that, but yeah, yes. Yeah. But but in principle, <laughs> like, yeah. it would have been months before we would have gotten to building that out ourselves because we didn't have an active Spark deployment. So I think we had a footnote in a GitHub issue that said, oh, by the way, sometime having this as an execution engine would be kind of a cool thing. You know, we'd be supportive of that. And it was really cool that Cascade picked that up. And then the thing that happened after that is somebody came in and did BigQuery and steadily extending out the library. There's a little bit of one-upsmanship in open source sometimes where somebody sees a cool integration. They're like, I could do that, but I could do it with this bell and this whistle. And that's cool too. It's all good energy. I think your situation has been an interesting one where you have this great burgeoning open source community. And then in parallel, there seemed to be of late a rush to kind of proprietary software solutions in a similar vein. And I wonder, as kind of commanding a company and an open source project, what it feels like to be in that situation. Or is there any kind of, ah, we got to rush to a product? Or is there like, hey, we're betting on this community. Let's keep growing this. How has that felt? Yeah, there's some of both. But I think overall, it's more the second. Our fundamental belief is that like the future here, like th this is a, a set of tools and a set of use cases where developers are going to be the ones who really decide like theirs are the votes that count. And so being really close to a large community where we, we hear all the good and the bad about data quality from a lot of people, I think that puts us in a really good position to develop a thing. So I, like there are other companies out there. I, I know a lot of the founders, they're good people, they're smart people. And, you know, we're, wish them and their sales teams the best. And I think the developer-led motion here is going to be 
ultimately the one that really shapes the future. I'll also say philosophically, being very much a data person myself, but also wearing an entrepreneur hat, I feel this interesting psychological pull from going back and forth between just being delighted that we have venture dollars, we can build this thing, it's going to be part of the data ecosystem. And then the other half of the time being like, okay, I want to win the market. And part of the way that we've dealt with that is by trying to be really clear with the open source community about what's open, what will always be open, so that there's no ambiguity. Like, I want to be careful because it'd be easy to put my foot in my mouth here, but you've seen a lot of other open source communities where they've had to like claw back licenses or take things that used to be free and make them not free anymore. And we had, I'll call it the luxury, but we, we had this kind of thoughtful period in 2019 that Kyle and I have talked about where we were running a profitable bootstrapped company. We hadn't yet taken funding and sort of signed up for the venture back roller coaster. And in that period, we got to be really thoughtful about how do we build an open source project that on its own merits is genuinely valuable to the data ecosystem, like can become one of the defining abstraction layers for the data ecosystem. And then also have a paid product that can come in on top of that and add more without detracting anything from what's in open source. I think being able to be thoughtful about that at that time has put us in a place where everything that's in open source will always be in open source. And there's a cool act too coming with the cloud paid product before long. Yeah, that's an interesting observation that, that there may be some value in having that incubation period to sort out some things. Because you're right, there's not a lot of precedent for a happy path, you know, where we've seen these kind of clear cut open source companies commercialized in a way where everybody kind of meets expectations. There are several that have done it really well, I think. And there have been quite a few where there's been drama. And so just having that thoughtful period to figure out, okay, what is our promise to the community going to be? And how can we draw the lines so that we, we know we can keep those promises? If there are any potential founders thinking about this, I strongly encourage just thinking through, like take the time to figure out how you're going to segment value between open source and paid and make sure that there's really enough in both camps. Great. I want to transition us a bit. We talked about the very early days with you and James. We talked about the decision to kind of move superconductive around to backing the project and focusing there. Maybe you can take us more to today, what the project looks like, and we can move into your plans for the future. Yeah, I guess I'll give the kind of boring businessy stuff. And then, Kyle, if you want to fill us in on community growth and all that. So, so on the business side, public knowledge, we, we raised around from Index early this year. That's unlocked us to be able to just really grow the team and, and go from there. So we're well capitalized at this point. So some companies get to this point and they say, okay, put a bow on open source. Now we'll figure out the paid thing. We think there's a lot of work to do still in open source. And so we're building up the developer relations team and also having a large fraction of our core engineering continue to work on open source. And then at the same time, there's a, a team that's working on a paid hosted product. And I guess I'll, I'll put in the plug just because we mentioned it a couple of times. We're not doing active signup or active waitlist at this point. We're working with a small number of design partners, but through people who are forward thinking about data and really like the approach we're taking we'd be happy to talk to people about design partnerships too. So I'll put that as a plug for anybody who's listening. Kyle, do you want to give us more about kind of what's coming next on the developer relations and the open source roadmap? Sure. And just, just to add, you can hop in our Slack to ask about the cloud. And then there's also a sign up form on our site, just so you know how to get in contact with us. Thank you for connecting the dots. <laughs> you <got it. laughs> 
Uh, um, yeah, so for uh, DevRel, um, like I said, we're growing the team. We've run a lot of experiments on having events, on having uh, community-generated content. And we don't want those to just be sort of experiments we do just here and there. We want that to be a consistent thing. So we're looking to have those show and tells on, on a cadence. Same with our office hours and sort of opening up the roadmap to our users. We also are working on some cool features for the community that will be live on our site towards the end of October. One is going to be our expectation gallery. So the idea there is that we'll have a list of all the expectations that uh, have been created from us and the community. So when you make your own expectation that is merged into the code base, it'll be listed in the gallery with your GitHub handle attached to it, along with all the features of the expectation and the explanation of it. So I'm hoping that that will sort of encourage more people to make expectations and then allow other people to sort of show off the uh, contributions that they've made. So with this gallery, we're hoping that we could help start to do different initiatives that tackle maybe verticals of expectations. So we can have a calling out for expectations that are in healthcare and security and pharma. Geo, time series, statistics, explainable AI, like there are all kinds of places where the framework can extend to and be used. For the uninitiated, an expectation is kind of like a type. It's a bundling of like, this is what this data should look like generally. Yeah. You can think of it as an assertion about data. Oh, let's start with basic ones, but like expect column values to not be null or expect column values to be between. But you can also do interesting things like expect column pair to be correlated, right? Like, like what is my Pearson's correlation? You can do anomaly detection. And as we get into other domains, we're going to be able to do things like expect point to be within polygon geographically or expect lat long to be within country. So you can think of it as an assertion. The interesting thing about data is almost all of data science is about asking questions that are themselves kind of assertion-like. So it ends up being this really big library of questions that you can delegate to the machine to ask for you. And yeah, there's actually some really cool ways that those can mix and match as time goes on. Interesting. So yeah, I guess what you, maybe you've just highlighted for me is that arbitrary data I could feed to the expectation gallery and say, is, are, are there any expectations that seem to describe this data? Yeah, if you wanted to truly brute force it, totally. Yeah, you see that sometimes with things like demographic data. Like, okay, I've got this column, it contains strings, the strings are long enough that they seem to be interesting, but like, what are these things? Are they addresses? Are they names? Are they, and so looking for regex hits or you know, statistical characteristics of matching patterns and characters, you can actually size up, like, what is that data? So we're joining all kinds of threads now, but I, we were talking before about type systems. I, again, think that the flight team, the Dagster team are thinking cool thoughts here. Over time, I think it's going to be really valuable to have your data system know not just, oh, this is a five-digit integer, but this is a valid zip code in the state of Massachusetts. Because if you know that, then you can reason all kinds of other things about it. That metadata becomes really, really valuable. So anyway... The sky's the limit there. Like, there's all kinds of things that we're, we're looking forward to building in the community. And from the community angle, what's cool is that these contributions can be great for someone where it's like their first contribution, or you can have these extremely complicated contributions. We actually did a student hackathon 
where we did a speed run. And I think the fastest one was definitely under five minutes. I think I, I don't want to exaggerate. I think it was like 3.30 or something like that. We've got that video somewhere. Yeah, we do. We do. We At least I know I have the kurtosis one that was under five minutes. It might have even been three. But that's like just to show like how you can make a contribution quick. And then we'll be highlighting opportunities of how you can sort of enhance these contributions of the expectations instead of having to come up with your own. But yeah, so that's one of the initiatives with the gallery. Fantastic. There's so much we could discover. I I promised you guys a reasonable length conversation, which we're bumping up against. What haven't we covered that we want to share with our listeners today? I don't know that we've actually said the words on this, but as we've thought about like, what's the difference between open source and a future paid product? The way that we think about open source great expectations, I think it already is. And we just want to make sure that it like can always be a shared open standard for data quality. Because having these expectations, having these rules is a thing that lots and lots of other systems need. So Dagster, for example, Flight, for example, Databricks' Delta Lake tool, they all have a concept of expectations. And none of those are rigidly running great expectations code, but the concept is valuable in all of those places. You see it in data catalogs, you see it in ETL and reverse ETL. Like All of these things need a concept of data quality. And the notion of an expectation turns out to be really valuable for all of them. So the kind of grand vision that we see is we want to be in a place where we can put out this open standard that defines how those expectations can work across all kinds of platforms and all kinds of infrastructure. You don't have to use our code. I mean, it's open source, so so why not? But if you do, or, or even if you just write code that's compatible with it, you could translate back and forth between those expectations and great expectations. And by doing that, you get the profilers, you get the documentation, you get all of the other pieces that are added to that. So like where we want to go with open source is providing this abstraction layer that just should exist. Like it, it is so valuable in so many places and there's no reason for the world to keep reinventing it. So that's where we want to go with open source. That's fantastic, Abe. And I think it is an important clarification. You described an open standard that could be consumed even if you didn't use your code. I mean, it sounds like you're describing almost a protocol or something like uh, SQL or a syntax, maybe. But, but basically, you're not describing a, some, something that necessarily executes, but you're describing a way of talking about describing in, in a, a set of standards. I think that's exactly right. The way I would describe it is great expectations as an open source library is it is that protocol. And if you if you look, that's really the testing infrastructure in the docs, like that's how the protocol is defined. We then have one reference implementation of that in Python. And we've been, with help from people like Cascade Data Labs, we've made it so that that reference implementation actually transpiles, if I can use the fancy word, into Pandas, into Spark, into a whole bunch of SQL dialects. And so using Python to orchestrate, you can actually put it in all of those places. But I mean, there's discussion in the DBT community, for example, of having a compatible library that's pure SQL. It doesn't have any Python implementation at all. We've had a little bit of conversation with folks in the tidyverse world of, okay, what would it look like to have an R implementation of these things? Or you could take a library like assert R that does many similar things and be able to compile back and forth or transpile back and forth so that they can get the benefit of some of the infrastructure that we've built. So it's a bit of a brain flip, but if you think about what will create the most value in the world, that's the way to do it, is to have this layer that can be used and shared by lots of people in lots of places. 
Makes perfect sense. Abe, Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I know you both have a lot to do. I mean, you, you have to save us all from bad data code and uh, you have a limited team and, and a big community waiting on you. So I appreciate you coming on today. For, for our listeners, this was recorded in mid-September and will probably be published in late October. Some of the details here may have changed at the time of the publishing. Hey, Eric, thanks for having us on. It's been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thanks so much, Eric. I really enjoyed it. Find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor. Contributor.